Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to your Monday Buckeye Talk from Cleveland.com. Douglas Maurice and Nathan Baird. We are going to talk about Georgia, Tennessee, and what that game meant for Ohio State. We will talk about the playoff shakeup in general over the weekend and what that means for Ohio State. We will talk about the Big Ten West race. Illinois might be blowing it. Illinois lost to Michigan State and what that means for Ohio State. We will look back to some degree at Ohio State's run game against Northwestern and what that means for Ohio State. And then we'll do what you're talking about, what you're eating about, what you're watching about. And that doesn't know that doesn't I don't know what an Ohio State. Ryan Nathan watched a thing on Hulu and Doug ate a hamburger. Nobody at Ohio State would actually care about that. So so that will not deal with that. But Nathan, off the top, kind of the game of the year, one of the games of the year in college football. Georgia beats Tennessee in Athens. And one of the things that I take away for that from Ohio State is don't play Georgia in Georgia. Don't be the team that has to play Georgia in the Peach Bowl in Atlanta because in a neutral it's not neutral but that was they they played that opening georgia oregon game in atlanta and georgia destroyed oregon and oregon might make the playoff that's a home game for georgia against tennessee they dismantle tennessee and you could just hear the hum on tv like it just was like oh like there were just people screaming the whole game and the the georgia people after the game were talking about what a great home field advantage that was that's one of the things i had i think we have to keep in mind here nathan that and it's like why one of the reasons when we get to a 12-team playoff, if those first-round games are on campus sites, that really is going to be, I think, a significant edge for the 5, 6, 7, and 8 against the 9, 10, 11, and 12, because you saw it in the two biggest games of the year in the SEC. Tennessee beats Alabama. If that game's not at Tennessee, if it's at Alabama or if it's a neutral site, I'm not sure if Tennessee wins. If that game on Saturday is not at Georgia or in the state of Georgia – I'm not saying Georgia wouldn't win, but I don't think they would have won the same way. I thought you saw the home field advantage rise up there, and this is an Ohio State podcast. To get through either of those teams for Ohio State on the way to the national championship, they won't have to do that. And I thought the atmosphere affected the game. And we talk about Ohio State home field advantage, lack of home field advantage or whatever. Sometimes I forget about that when we think about the playoff. Don't play Georgia and Georgia, and and that if, as long as Ohio State avoids that, and they almost certainly probably would, then you, I don't think they'll see that version of Georgia this season. Do you, do you think it mattered that much? It probably. I mean, listening to the game broadcast, and I obviously we don't follow the SEC as closely, but one of the things they said up front was like, this is the biggest game in 
the history of the stadium, basically. And at first, that seems kind of hyperbolic because, you know, you're only two-thirds of the way through the year. But, I mean, it's one versus two. It decides who's probably going to win the East and sets somebody up to maybe be the number one overall seed in the playoff. I mean, it, 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 it's a massive game. And you and I had a text exchange last week because I know on the one of the pods you were talking about how Ohio State is, like, destined to go to the Fiesta. But the loser of the Michigan-Ohio State game as we're probably going to talk about a little more as a consequence of this game, partially, and m- much more the consequence of Alabama and Clemson losing. But the loser of that game could set up to be the four seed, probably still make the playoff, but the reward is probably going to be going to Atlanta to play Georgia. And I think this showed you one way that... And now, it's different in the playoff, the way the tickets are sold, and it's supposed to be more equated, but let's be honest. like It's going to still end up being a favorable home advantage for Georgia, really whatever SEC team you try to play is the, if the, if one ends up being the one seed, if it was Tennessee, if it had ended up being Alabama, it'd be the same thing, but, or even Clemson, if they had been able to fool around and somehow be the only undefeated team left or whatever. But I, I don't think you want to play the Peach Bowl against Georgia this year. So it's one of those things I do. Yes. But like, if you're the four seed, you're just like, Oh God, thank God we're in. Right. It's like, we have a sure. chance. So like Ohio state, if they, they beat, Michigan, they're not going to have to play Georgia and Georgia. So that is a good thing for right. Ohio State. And if you lose to Michigan, it's just like cross your fingers and hope. But I do think as, as we think about this, so, so let's, we have to talk about that because I do think you and I did two weeks ago, could Ohio State, Michigan both make the playoff? That path widened. That path mm-hmm. widened. I think, I don't know if it's significantly, but to some degree, the path for two Big Ten teams certainly widened with the results we had on Saturday. But let's stay on Georgia for a second, because I do think right now, if you said national title game go, I think a lot of people in college football would say Ohio State, Georgia, the, the way things have shaken down. And I do think when you watch that Georgia game, first of all, I do think Tennessee did not handle the environment, right? They had a Tennessee was trying to stay in it late. I think they were down 21-3, for instance. They got down, they had a third and two in the red zone, and they had two consecutive penalties, false starts or illegal form or legal motion or something bad. For, they turned a third and two into a third and 12 because they couldn't handle the noise. Yeah. And they wound up having to kick a field goal there where if they get a touchdown there, they stay alive, right? There was a shot early. Hendon Hooker missed a deep shot early when I think it was Cedric Tillman. Somebody ran by the safety and was open and they missed it. Stetson Bennett, when it mattered early, did not miss. Three, Georgia's first three touchdown drives all set up by deep shots. First one is three tight ends to the left, single receiver to the right. Receiver runs right past the corner. Safety doesn't get the help. The corner's not completely smoked, and Stetson Bennett drops a stinking dime on the guy's hands 55 yards down the field. One for Stetson Bennett. I think... The next one, so the next two in whatever order they were, one is to, a, I think if they got a, a running back, Kenny McIntosh is really good. They get a running back on a linebacker, mismatch, down the field, Stetson Bennett, bang. The guy's open, but it's a little cluttered in the middle of the field, bang, hits the guy. And the third one is blown coverage by a Tennessee secondary that has kind of been Tennessee's Achilles heel. Blown coverage, Lad McConkey touchdown. Stetson Bennett puts it right on him. He's open by five yards, but also he didn't miss him. So three huge throws by Stetson Bennett. And then, by the way, the way they finished off one of those drives was a third and 10 scramble for a touchdown. That was totally him. So Stetson Bennett came to play, brother. Like, he came to play. 
And when Hendon Hooker had some chances early, Tennessee faced, forced a fumble on the first possession, gets held to a field goal. you got to cash that early. Misses a deep shot. Like a couple didn't run much in the first quarter. Stetson Bennett outplayed Hendon Hooker in the first quarter. And the result was it's 21 to 6 before you, 21 even a three before you even get going. And then like, that's it. That kind of was it. So, um, and then the other part of it is that Georgia's secondary, it's Kamari Lasseter and Keely Ringo at corner. Guys who can break on the ball, who they're not afraid to put out there. Uh, Javon Bullard, there was one like really important third down play where Hooker threw over the middle on like kind of a, they need to keep this drive going. And, and I think to the tight end over the middle, it's like a pretty good route time. And Javon Bullard as the slot corner is just like all over him and just makes like plays perfect one-on-one coverage and knocks it away on a critical third down. And then Chris Smith and Malachi Stark. Smith is a veteran. Starks is a true freshman as their safeties are playmakers too. So I did think Nathan, part of it is Stetson Bennett came to play. Don't play Stetson Bennett in Georgia either. Like Stetson Bennett's like, I own this state. So don't play him there. But I did think we were asking about like back, like defensive secondaries, right? Who can handle a passing attack? I thought you saw five guys for Georgia that they were like, okay, let's do this. And those guys were like, cool, we're good. And then up front, they got six sacks. They had eight tackles for loss. You know, a lot of it is sort of individual pressure from guys winning your battles. Jalen Carter, who had been out for a little bit, was back. But they did put five guys out there in the secondary, Nathan, who were not scared of the Tennessee passing attack and who would not be scared of the Ohio State passing attack. Now, would they defend it as well? Maybe not. But I, George will take its chances with those guys. Yeah, certainly no intimidation factor, both because of what this team has already accomplished over the past two seasons now, but also, I think, legitimately just how good they are. And and, and this only enhances that, going up against a, a team like Tennessee and limiting it to the extent that it did. I was struck by just how physical really both teams were. I actually came away from this game a little bit with a little bit more respect for Tennessee in some ways because I think they were thought of as maybe like the finesse team. And I thought they held up pretty well at times against Georgia. Just there were other circumstances that, that as you were saying, kind of leaned this game in Georgia's favor pretty early. And Stetson Bennett, the, the thing that I came away from this game with, and I'm really not trying to damn him with faint praise, but we've talked so many times about the Big Ten quarterbacks who have beaten Ohio State And they're kind of like NFL-ish guys. David Blau gets on NFL roster. Nate Stanley gets on NFL rosters. They can make NFL rosters deep in the depth chart, start them if everybody else is dead, whatever. But if if you surround those guys with NFL talent, like he seems like another version of that, like maybe even like a, a enhanced version of that, like an enhanced Nate Stanley, an enhanced David Blau. Like there's, that's, I'm I'm really, I'm not trying to, that, that sounds worse than he is. He's, he's pretty good on his own, but I think there's enough other pro talent on that offense. I said last week when we were doing the preview pod, I picked Georgia to win this game. And I thought partially it was because people don't respect Georgia's offense enough. And it doesn't do dazzling things the way Ohio State and Tennessee have done. It doesn't even do dazzling things in the way that Michigan does it in a very different scheme, in a very different sphere. But it's just so uh, physical and 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 efficient and, and, and really like picks its moments to have big plays. And I came away from this game thinking – and we're bouncing around a lot of topics here, offense, defense. But when I start looking at the Ohio State matchup, the kind of, the thing that kind of jumped on my head was this might be the defense that 
the, the where the, where Jim Knowles' safety-driven defense really has to assert itself against a team that's this reliant on tight ends and this reliant on being physical. And how do you match that? I mean, they don't have great receivers. I mean, like they, the, the guy, the the guy. That's my point, caught, though. It, it's more the tight end game that they play. Yeah, well, Brock Bowers is awesome, but like in terms of like surrounding Stetson Bennett with NFL receiver, or, you know, like with NFL talent, like that. Arian Smith was the guy who caught the first deep ball. That was his only catch. He won catch for 52 yards, right? Like they do. Brock Bowers is the best tight end in the country, and everybody knows that. And he is a real problem. They play like three or four running backs every game. I think Kenny McIntosh is is a real. He can make guys miss in the hole, um, which is something we can talk about with Ohio State in a second. But like that is, uh, you know, I thought he he made some he made a couple plays where it's like he he took care of a guy or two on certain plays. But you know, this is not Nick Chubb. This is not you know Todd Gurley kind of necessarily. I don't I don't think even think it's James Cook and um, the other guy from last year that I I don't think it's quite that good in the backfield. They have a lot of guys. Kendall Milton's there, who's a guy that Ohio State recruited uh, a couple years ago. But Bowers and Darnell Washington, real threats at tight end. They can scheme me up. I, I will say Todd Monken's really good, right? The offensive coordinator. I do think you can just see how Todd Monken knows exactly what he has. He knows exactly what Stetson Bennett can and can't do. He knows exactly how defenses want to defend Brock Bowers, and he still tries, finds ways, right? They run the tight end. He right. finds ways to get the ball in the hands of Brock Bowers. And so they were really efficient. But I it's just one of those things, if, if Bennett doesn't hit all three of those shots, early and Hendon Hooker does hit a shot early. I think it flips the game a little bit. I think like in, in reading the coverage and that kind of thing, it was, what was it? 27 to 13. And people are saying it was more dominant than that. I almost think like early, it was a little less dominant than that. Cause things just Tennessee didn't handle the crowd. A punt went out of bounds at the one yard line. Georgia mm-hmm. did a perfect punt and pinned Tennessee back. And that screwed them up, forced them to punt out of their own end zone. And they wound, you know, Georgia took over at the 35 yard line or something. That was like well, a huge deal. There were a bunch of like little plays that paid big dividends early on. And Georgia had like good, bad luck in a game like this, where they were trying to argue there was replay on whether that was going to be a safety or not, a play in the end zone where Tennessee was pinned. They decided it wasn't a safety, so they punted away and Georgia gets a touchdown out of it. Like just little things like that that sometimes swing your way accidentally. And and then, but also, by the way, Georgia fumbles in the first possession. Tennessee takes over in plus right. territory and Georgia stiffens and holds to a field goal because right. that's what Georgia does defensively. So I think... Again, pressure up front. They can get pressure without having to, you know, bring six guys every time. DBs that you believe in that you allow to go out there and play. But the game that Tennessee had to play on Saturday, Ohio State will not have to play. So keep that in mind. I'm here for Georgia Ohio State every day of the week. Let's do this thing. Like I would, I would like to see it. We did not get to see it last year, so now I would like to see it this year. I think most people would like to see it. I think there's a pretty decent chance that we get it. But let's talk about everything else that happened. One is Clemson lost. Convincingly, Dabo was like, Notre Dame kicked our butts. Convincing loss, like with the same win, because there was a Matt Fortuna, college football writer, was at Ohio State Northwestern, was like, oh, I'm leaving to go to Notre Dame Clemson now. And it's like the same, like the wind is following him, right? I mean, they, they dealt with, I think, some of the same wind stuff. And like Notre Dame did its thing. I don't you know. Notre Dame, Notre Dame did its thing. So Clemson lost. Oregon remains interesting. The Pac-12 as a one-loss Oregon team. I think Georgia kind of dismantling Tennessee helped Oregon. 
because it makes the Oregon early week one loss to Georgia like even more excusable. Like, well, I don't know. Georgia's just number one, man. I don't know what to tell you. Oregon still might deserve to be in the top four. I think that Pac-12 champ, if it's one loss, Oregon comes more back into play. TCU still manages to remain undefeated. And then Bama's out, which is always a big deal that Bama is out. Um, That is... A big deal that Bama's out, but and and on the college football survivor show last week, Nathan, one of the when when Shahan Jaharaja and I were talking about the first rankings, the thing that he zeroed in on was LSU in the top ten. LSU now on track to win its division in the SEC with head-to-head wins over Bama and Ole Miss, so they have the the, the tiebreakers, right? If two loss LSU beats Georgia, like the SEC champ is going to be in. So now all of a sudden, that's that's a path for how you wind up with two SEC teams. You also could wind up with two SEC teams if Georgia is the undefeated champ and Tennessee's in the mix. But generally, Bama out, Clemson takes a loss. Did you think, was that a good weekend for the Big Ten, a bad weekend for the Big Ten? We had said right off the top, we think the path widened for two Big Ten teams to get in. What do you think of that whole scenario for maybe both Ohio State and Michigan? I think it was a good weekend for the Big Ten. I think it would have been a fantastic weekend for the Big Ten if Illinois had beaten Michigan State. Because now Illinois is weakened. It's not going to look as good when Michigan beats them in two weeks. And that would have enhanced Michigan's standing for it enhanced its playoff resume, which is a resume that we know the committee already is dinging them for the slop that they played in the first three weeks of the year. But Alabama, as you say, is out. Clemson, I think, is effectively out because they were already behind and now we have taken a loss, and I don't know what gets them. I don't know how they jump past the one loss that someone like Ohio State or Michigan would take at this point, assuming it's because to each other. Because they'd be a conference champ, and the committee always reevaluates you once you have a championship. Well, they do. That's that's the history of that. They don't think we'll of see. you as a conference champ until you're a conference champ. And then when you're a conference champ, that does up you. It, it, that's in the bylaws that a conference championship does matter. I don't. Would the loser of Ohio State-Michigan be guaranteed to get in ahead of ACC champ Clemson? I would say no right now. I think their chances, they would not have gotten in over undefeated Clemson. They could get in over one loss Clemson, but North Carolina is still a decent win potentially in the ACC championship game. I don't think Clemson's out, but certainly the Big Ten's in better shape than it was going into Saturday. Yeah, North Carolina is a good record. They're not an especially good team. We'll see if if that holds up. I mean, I, I that's why I said it's effectively effectively out. Well, you're, because clearly they're means not. like pretty much out. Right, but I, I I would still I think the I think the Ohio State Michigan loser will be in good position, and I also think a one loss Tennessee at that point with the wins that it has would be a factor there too. Because we've seen in the past where sometimes you're better off having that loss and not losing on championship weekend than trying to lose on championship weekend and still get in. So I don't know if I would rule out a one-loss Tennessee from being in that top four at the end of the year, too. So, but well, who? But nobody would be losing on championship weekend and trying to get in in any of these scenarios, right? Not really. No, 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 no. Right. So because if Clemson loses, they're out. So I do think, I do think the the Pac-12, if if the the Pac-12 won. There's a couple teams in the Pac-12 that could still have only, you know, USC, UCLA, Oregon could all still be one-loss Pac-12 champs. So they have to be in consideration. We had talked about this before, Nathan. The way that game went down, now that we know that the Georgia-Tennessee loser is Tennessee, it was at Georgia. It was 
kind of over early and fairly convincing in almost like game control, right? It wasn't a 50 point win, but it was a huge game control win. Georgia was just on it from the jump and that was Mm -hmm. it. As you think about it now, and, and the thing that, again, that we were talking about is Tennessee still has that Alabama win that the Ohio State Michigan loser will not have. They won't have anything approaching that Alabama win. Although, again, that Alabama win is a little less than what it was because now Alabama has two losses. But well, still, that's still but, a better win than Ohio State or Michigan's going to have. So what do you think in your head? What's that matchup between Tennessee, one loss Tennessee and the Ohio State Michigan loser? Is that even? How do you think that would work itself out? When again, much as my much as my dismissal of North Carolina's record, it, it's like the committee didn't care that Alabama already had a loss by where it placed it last week, and now Alabama has two losses by a combined four points on a last-second field goal and a two-point conversion on the road to in another overtime. team that it has very high in overtime. Right. So I don't think the, the Alabama's not plummeting on Tuesday night. I think we can probably predict that. I think they're still going to be they're going to be ahead of some one-loss teams, and it's going to irk some people, but. The, what was the, se- the second half of your question was how do you th- so we know that now it's Tennessee potentially so say Tennessee right. finishes 11 and 1 knowing now how that game went how do you think 11 and 1 Tennessee would match up in the eyes of, com- of the committee versus the Ohio State Michigan loser if that comes down to the fourth spot we had talked about it theoretically before we knew who the Georgia Tennessee loser was now we know who yeah. and how is that Alabama win going to carry the day for Tennessee or if the Ohio State Michigan game is more competitive. Is that will that be a big deal? Like, oh man, you know that was came down to the final two minutes, whereas Tennessee was pretty convincingly not the better team Saturday. I think it's probably better. I think Ohio State still is in better position as a one-loss team in that scenario against Tennessee. Um, it depends if Ohio State comes out and takes care of business next two weeks and looks like the Ohio State of old the next two weeks, and then gets on a field with Michigan and things kind of go awry. I think their body of work and the performance that got them the number two uh, ranking in the first poll, and it's probably going to keep them there until that game, I would imagine. Um, I I think that would win out as opposed to if Michigan is trying to get in. Now, again, that that Illinois loss, Illinois eventual Illinois win is not going to maybe look as good and already being sort of dinged for their non-conference schedule. I think then that's there's already a little bit more of a hurdle that Michigan has in front of it in the committee's eyes at least that's what it looked like based on what they showed us tuesday night last tuesday night so i do think right they a road loss is more excusable than a home loss so if ohio state loses at home well ohio state was already ahead of tennessee ohio state has been convincing in a lot of ways i I think i agree with your point that even though tennessee would have lost on the road ohio state would have lost at home ohio state's kind of already ahead of the game but i do think it matters i'm actually talking myself out of it maybe (laughs) i I do think i i don't know because it's like I still think Ohio State, well, that's it's an Ohio State podcast. Michigan on the road, I do think we had talked about going into last week's rankings. Hey, they like balance, they like balance. And then like Tennessee's unbalanced and they came out and they said, well, you know, I don't know. They beat Alabama and LSU. What? Who cares about balance? And then they applied the balance test to everybody else beneath Tennessee. Right. Now that Tennessee's not undefeated, maybe they get balance tested a little bit more. And if that's the case, they would fall short of Michigan and Ohio State, which are just more balanced teams. Offense, defense, not pass run. Offense, defense. Because you could see that the, the Tennessee defensive issues did crop up a little bit. So um, I, I want to take back, though, like – I. I'm probably wrong by saying that Ohio State would be in in a better situation against Tennessee, just because as much as it's true that the committee liked a lot of things about Ohio State's underlying resume, regardless of 
big wins on the schedule. That's why they were number two. There's also a reason why Tennessee was number one. And now you'd be comparing two one-loss non-conference champs for that potential fourth spot. Non-champs. Non-champs, yes, non-champs. One-loss non-champs. Now, Ohio State's resume is actually improving a little bit. They're getting some zombie, like Notre Dame beating Clemson. Notre Dame's going to be a ranked win for them probably this week, I would imagine. I bet Notre Dame is in the top 25 for the committee on Tuesday night. And Wisconsin, from the metrics, is better than its record. And that is something that the committee, I think, may not speak out loud, but will have on its sheets and is involved in its thinking. So... I don't know, but obviously Ohio State still, the the good thing for Ohio State is, unlike Tennessee, unlike Clemson, unlike Oregon, you completely control your own destiny at this point. Well, but the whole point, but yes, I mean, but like controlling your own destiny, like the Ohio State wins out, they're in conversation that everybody knows that. Like, I do think the thing that matters is if they lose to Michigan, could they get in? That is, and like what happened this weekend that affected that? So the ACC champ took a ding that potentially opens a spot because I know there are some people, this is just like the Twitterati a little bit is like, is it the big 10 East versus the sec East is the playoff going to be Georgia, Tennessee, Michigan, and Ohio state. So like if, if the PAC 12 and the big 12 and the ACC all ding themselves even more over the next couple weeks, that door is now more open where it's not an, a Tennessee or Ohio State conversation if Ohio State loses a Tennessee and the Ohio State conversation. So that is more real. But again, we're only talking about like if Ohio State loses because we know what happens if they right. win. If Ohio State loses, Tennessee will have the two best wins in the head-to-head with Ohio State and Tennessee, Alabama and LSU. Because Tennessee also like destroyed LSU and LSU just beat Alabama. So Tennessee would have the two best wins, but – would, would Ohio State still in a lot of metrics and the way you look at them and the way you talk about their explosive offense, but their defense is much better? And I think if it's close, I think if Michigan comes to Columbus and like sort of overwhelmingly proves that Michigan's the better team, like the way Georgia kind of did, I think Ohio State would be in trouble. If it's a close game and they're like, I don't know, man, put them both in. I, I think that would be very possible. So yeah. I think at, at right now, not guaranteed, but I think the path has widened to Ohio State losing a competitive game to a Michigan team that looks really good and getting in. I think that path has widened a decent amount over the past weekend. I also think you, you were mentioning the Pac-12, and one thing for people to keep an eye on is a lot of one-loss teams there, um, one loss within the Pac-12, and that's the important thing here because – Oregon, USC, UCLA, there's been some um, carnivorous stuff going on there, but uh, not carnivorous. Is that the word I mean? Yeah, no, carnivorous. Cannibalistic stuff. They're all eating each other. The team that people think might actually be the most complete team in that conference is Utah, but they have two losses right now, but only one in the conference. They also lost at Florida to open the year. If Utah were to win the Pac-12, Go get to the Pac-12 championship game and win it. I think that is very advantageous also for the Ohio State-Michigan loser. A one-loss USC, a one-loss Oregon, maybe even a one-loss UCLA if they finagle that. That gets complicated because now they're the conference champ with one loss where the Michigan-Ohio State loser isn't. But I think a two-loss Utah Pac-12 champ doesn't jump over Ohio State or Michigan. Because so So... There is a world where the ACC, the Big 12, and the Pac-12 over the, over the final three weeks in the conference championship weekend, 
knock themselves out so much that both of those conferences present two lost champs. Mm-hmm. And in that scenario, you open yourself to two SEC and two Big Ten. There is a scenario where TCU goes undefeated and either Clemson or the Pac-12 champ emerges as a very competent one-loss champ where all of a sudden maybe it's only champs. It's the SEC champ, the Big Ten champ, undefeated TCU in the Big 12, and then either the ACC or Pac-12 champ who are both very good. And then it doesn't matter. Then no, nobody, no losers, no non, non-champs are getting in. I think that's possible. But I also, th- and the middle path is there's three solid champs in and that fourth spot is wide open. And potentially it could come down to Tennessee versus the Ohio State uh, Michigan loser. The thing to watch in the Pac-12, Utah and Oregon play each other in two weeks and USC and UCLA play each other in two weeks. Mm-hmm. So all, probably the Pac-12 championship game will be the winners of those two games. And USC and UCLA both have one loss in the conference and one loss overall. Utah and Oregon both have one loss in the conference, but Utah has two con- two losses overall. So that, that thing, as you said. But if Oregon beats Utah, you're going to wind up with Oregon versus the USC-UCLA winner. And that's going to be a pretty compelling one-loss champ in that scenario. So open, open, open for Ohio State to get in, losing to Michigan. I think possible. But they would have to lose the right way, and they would need some help. What happens elsewhere in the final three weeks would matter. I also just want to say, as we've been talking about the playoff now for a few weeks, I was the one kind of presenting the idea that, like, I just don't – I think Clemson just seems like it's going to, like, accidentally go 13-0. and 0. Like, they, they keep just finding a way to win these games. And I'm starting to think that maybe that's actually TCU that – but they've got actually a tough kind of closing stretch here. I think they still play Texas. They still play Baylor. They still play uh, Kansas or Kansas State maybe in the – Or Iowa they're State. Gonna play Iowa State, the last game. One of those teams in the Big 12 right. championship game. Again. So, I mean, that's – there's three games left on their regular season schedule. They could – if they went 0-3, it wouldn't, like, shock me. Now that's three pretty solid teams. So I think there's a lot to still be said in the Big 12. But it's just funny how some of these teams have gotten this far into a season. Like to a week, we're in week 11 now, and you've still got teams that are uh, – this one group of teams that are like asserting themselves as clearly the best. And then TCU just kind of like the, the, the puppy dog just annoyingly kind of hanging around. I mean, there, there have been teams that have – kind of annoyingly hung around through the entire regular season and then like won the national championship. So I'm not saying that would be TCU, but you know, they might do it. That's the thing. The big 12, I think is, is quite a deep conference and they have some very solid teams, but TCU keeps scraping by, but like, they're not, you know, they're not scraping by against Northwestern. You know, they're scraping by against like top 40 teams. You know, like these are still good wins, I think. So, Okay. That's our playoff breakdown. Kind of talked ourselves into the circle, but that's the nature of the playoff, is it not? So anyway, um, again, we're talking about like, what if Ohio State loses? Because if, if Ohio State wins, I do think like path to the number one seed, you know, kind of tough, right? Georgia's the defending champ. They took care of business. Kind of tough. Now, the thing is that that, that SEC championship game, you know, it's not going to be Bama. So, you know, but also as we're going to get to next, the Big Ten West, that, that, if Ohio State's in the Big Ten, Big Ten championship game, they're not going to impress anybody with what they do in Indianapolis just because it's not going to be that impressive of an opponent. So right, path number one, probably pretty tough for Ohio State, but solidly number two in the Fiesta Bowl. And that's the thing, too. It's almost like if they're number two, there's a is there a world? Well, I said they, they might want to split the SEC teams. I wonder. 
you might want to be number two instead of number three. That's what I'm saying. Like if TCU's number three, <laughs> it's like, ah, oh, take TCU, like Ohio State TCU in the Fiesta Bowl and um, like Georgia, Oregon or Georgia Clemson or Georgia, Michigan, you know, it's like, ah, oh, take TCU. That's fine. Like I had TCU barely scraped in and then Ohio State's like, oh no, we, we, we can do this. This would be fine. So, all right, quick break. When we come back, Big Ten West and the Ohio State run game next on Buckeye Talk. All right, Nathan, we're living the dream, and the dream is a three-loss three loss in the Big Ten, Big Ten West champ, which actually has never happened in the history of the Big Ten West, which was created in 2014 after a couple years of legends and leaders. Big Ten West champ, Big Ten losses by year. 2014 one, 2015 none, because Iowa was eight and zero going to play Michigan State. Mm-hmm. 2016 two, 2017 none, because Wisconsin was like on a playoff path that year. Mm-hmm. 2018 one, because guess what, Northwestern went eight and one, pretty good. <laughs> good. 2019 two, 2020 one. Last year Iowa was a seven and two, two loss, two loss in the Big Ten, Big Ten West champ, and there was a three way tie for third for second. At six and three with Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Purdue. So that was the closest that we are potentially to this. We're not all the way there yet because Illinois losing to Michigan State, Illinois is four and two, but Illinois has to play Michigan. So for purposes of this discussion, I am assuming that Illinois loses to Michigan. I am sort of counting that already as a loss, which would then put us in a situation where, as we sit here right now, if you count that as an Illinois loss, Illinois, Iowa, Wisconsin, Purdue, and Minnesota all have three Big Ten losses. They are all in this race. The only two teams that are out are Nebraska and Northwestern. The remaining games against each other. Illinois has one game left against the, th- against the other Big Ten West contenders. Illinois hosts Purdue this weekend. Huge game. It's, it's Iowa the game. Had, it, it decides Iowa, this whole thing, I think. There's Iowa, Wisconsin this weekend also matters a lot, but Purdue, Illinois is, is the most important Big Ten West game remaining. I agree with you. Iowa, Wisconsin this weekend is also really important. Iowa has two of three games left against other Big Ten West challengers. They host Wisconsin, then they're at Minnesota next week. Wisconsin is at Iowa this week and then host Minnesota the last weekend. Purdue only has this Illinois game because Purdue's other games are Northwestern and Indiana. And then Minnesota has Northwestern this weekend. And then there are two games that matter, Iowa in two weeks and then at Wisconsin to end the year. Here's the main thing, I think. Illinois is still in very, 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 very good shape because A, Illinois has the head-to-head tiebreaker Mm -hmm. with Iowa. But actually, the whole point is Illinois has the head-to-head tiebreaker with everybody. Yes. Yes. Except Purdue, because they haven't played Purdue yet. But Illinois, at the moment, if they beat Purdue and lose to Michigan, Illinois will have three Big Ten losses all to the east. They will have lost to Michigan, Michigan State, and Indiana. And the first tiebreaker is head-to-head. So if two teams are tied, it's head-to-head. And Wisconsin, if it beats Purdue, would have the head-to-head tiebreaker over everybody in the West. And then like the next tiebreaker, if it's a group tie, the first tiebreaker is record in the division. And Wisconsin would be undefeated. And right now, Big Ten, Big Ten West losses, losses in the division, Illinois zero, Iowa and Wisconsin one each, Purdue and Minnesota two each. So the pecking order of who's in the best shape in like the order of things, Illinois is in the best shape. And then the second best shape is going to be the Iowa-Wisconsin winner this weekend. So Illinois-Purdue is the most important game left. I think Iowa-Wisconsin is the second most important game left. But if Illinois beats Purdue 
it's pretty much over because then Illinois could still lose to Michigan. And then all they would have to do is go to Evanston to beat Northwestern. And unless, and frankly, if it's 90 mile per hour winds, Bert would be like, yep, let's do this. <laughs> exactly. Is so, Illinois a better I, matchup for Northwestern than Ohio State is? They're definitely uh, a better yeah. matchup for a hurricane. Sure. So I think in the end, Illinois losing to Michigan State was like, what? Are they blowing it? But actually, they're not. They're still in the best shape. But if they completely collapse, if like this is the beginning of them like losing four straight games to end the season, then it's wide open. And we could see the Ferentz Bowl in Indianapolis. Who wants that? Who wants that? Who would have thought? Everybody who's going to be at that press conference wants that. Well, just we're hugging out. We're going to hug it out. <laughs> we're going to hug it out. I mean, like it would be. I mean, like it's just that's how life is. They make a movie about it. We'd hug it out. So it was a surprising loss for Illinois to lose to Michigan State, but in the end, it just means the West is muddled and kind of like what else is new. So what would really be fun right now is if Nebraska had figured out a way to beat Illinois, because then you would have six three and three teams mm. playing for the final oh, yeah. three weeks. Um, which would just be mass chaos. Now that that Northwestern team you mentioned that was eight and one actually had lost its first three games that year. It lost all three of its non-conference games. So not a same scenario within the division, but you got a a, a yes. four loss team to Indianapolis for that game that had five losses when Ohio State was done with them. Uh, but you're right. It's as bad as it, it. It doesn't hurt Illinois. I think it's not great for the Big Ten though. As I said before, the Michigan State loss because Illinois was like pushing for. I mean, if, if Illinois had beaten Michigan State and then beaten Purdue, now you're looking at a team that's like knocking on the door of the top ten, possibly. But 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 what's the effect? It's not because it the helped Big ten meaning what? Well, it's just the domino effect from that 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 gives potentially gives more respect to the win for Michigan when it wins that game, and it puts it puts Illinois in a better light for when it does get to Indianapolis, and potentially if I, at that point really the Ohio State. Michigan, whoever ends up winning that game doesn't need help per se. Uh, no, they don't. So I, I just think it's it, it it's going to, I don't know, just the esteem of the Big Ten. You're going to have a three-loss Illinois team show up and potentially get flattened by Ohio State or Michigan. I don't think that like looks good for the conference. No, yeah, but I mean, the West always is like, the West never looks Not good always. for the conference. Not always. You just rattled off a bunch of years where you had yeah, no, zero loss, one like loss pe- teams. But people still don't respect them. People aren't still like, oh, no, oh that Western, be I don't know. It's like they, they still don't respect them. Wisconsin at 17, I think people thought, hey, I don't know. Is this a good team? And then they did hang with Ohio State for part of that game. Um, I do think the biggest thing is maybe the effect on Michigan. If Michigan loses to Ohio State and is trying to get in as the four, maybe that Illinois win is not quite as impressive. I think that's the thing there. Like that, that once once the Big Ten champ gets to Indy, you know, one seed, two seed, doesn't matter that much. They'd want to go to the Fiesta Bowl probably anyway. I don't even know. You might be better off. So it's, I think it's cosmetic more than anything else. But I do think possibly Michigan wants Illinois to be as good as possible and respected as much as possible in case Michigan comes. Michigan, with a terrible non-conference schedule, comes to Columbus and loses. They, they want the rest of the resume to be puffed up um, as much as it can be. So, it you know, just so for, for Ohio State fans wondering, hey – if Ohio State wins, beats Michigan and wins the East, who is Ohio State going to play? Like, you're interested in that. Hey, I'm going to go to Annapolis. Hey, I wonder who they're going to play. Hey, it'd be a little, yeah, I like playing that guy. It's like a good. It's probably still Illinois, but watch Illinois Purdue this week and watch Wisconsin Iowa this week, and those will really matter. So 
if Purdue beats Illinois, if Purdue beats Illinois, if Purdue beats Illinois, I don't know what the head-to-head is. Who did? How did Purdue do against Iowa and Wisconsin? If Purdue beats Illinois, Purdue's in fantastic shape because then Illinois is probably going to end up five and four, and then Purdue just has to beat Northwestern and win at Indiana, and it's going to be the six and three team, and it will have a tiebreaker over. Well, it lost to Wisconsin, so then it becomes who wins the Wisconsin-Minnesota game. Purdue beat Minnesota, lost to Wisconsin, and one of okay, the I so think either the Wisconsin, Wisconsin or Minnesota, I think either Purdue one just or, lost Iowa. Purdue just lost Iowa. Purdue just oh, got true, blown off true. the field by yeah, Iowa. But, but that's if – so Iowa would have to win out too. I mean because – No, but hold, here's the whole point. Hold on, hold on, hold on. If Purdue beats Illinois, Purdue loses the direct head-to-head tiebreaker with both Iowa and Wisconsin if they finish tied. Mm. And the Iowa-Wisconsin winner of this week would have the same record as Purdue and would have the head-to-head tiebreaker with Purdue. So actually they right. would now control their own destiny. And then Iowa would have to – they both have to play Minnesota – Mm-hmm. But if Purdue beats Illinois, the winner of Iowa-Wisconsin controls its own destiny to win the Big Ten West. So Purdue is actually not in fantastic shape. They need help. But they'd be in better shape than if they lose to Illinois. It, yeah, I guess it depends. Like I, I, Fantastic shape. I, I would predict Minnesota to be either both Iowa and Wisconsin Why? at this point. Why? Why would you predict that? They're all the, they're all the same team. They're all three and three. Because what about Minnesota I, would lead you to predict that they were going to beat Iowa or Wisconsin? Because I looked at the performances over the course of the year, and oh. I did this little exercise where I predicted who would win all the games that are remaining, and I picked Iowa and Wisconsin to both lose to Minnesota. You think – so, okay. All right. Well, that's just – I mean, that's – Minnesota, who lost to Illinois, got blown off the field by Penn State, um, had looked pretty good before that. Beat Nebraska twenty to thirteen. Also lost to Purdue. The issue that they've okay. had is Ibrahim being healthy. That's okay. that's kind of sidetracked their season. So that's all a mess. Illinois still is is the most likely team. I think if you did odds right now, who's most likely going to be the Big Ten West champ? I think Illinois is still pretty strongly that. Uh, but keep an eye on the Iowa Wisconsin winner from this week as well. All right, let's get to some Ohio State stuff. You and I both. I, I watched the the run plays sort of up until the fourth and one that changed everything. Just trying to get a handle on Ohio State Northwestern guys in the box. Northwestern knows Ohio State's not going to throw. Is that why Ohio State struggled to run the ball for most of the first half? Was it that there were unblocked Northwestern defenders that were able to attack the run? Because the the weather changed the game plan so much, they did not fear the Ohio State passing game, which would normally scare them to death. Was that the thing? When you rewatched Nathan, the Ohio State run game against Northwestern, how much did you feel like, yep, that is a loaded box and unblocked defenders taking care of business, and it was really the weather was the number one thing about why Ohio State struggled to run it early. Well, it certainly was an issue at times. I'm not going to say it was never an issue, and especially there were instances early in this game. So between the second and third uh, possessions of this game, uh, they came on the game broadcast, a sideline reporter saying like, hey, C.J. Stroud's over there telling Ryan Day that he doesn't know how to control the ball right now. So at that early in the game, they had learned that going into the wind was going to be adverse at best. And you saw in those next couple of series, uh, the, the one that really stand, stood out to me was there was a first down play. Mayan Williams runs to the left and gets a hole and Northwestern, I forget his name. It was number 24 comes down and just smacks him like just 
pops him. And I thought that was an example of where you've got a defense that knows it can pretty much play downhill. There's no the the threat of some, of misreading something off of the run game is minimal and a guy is 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 really attacking the way that we've seen Ohio State play defense uh, a lot this season. Um so I thought there were definitely examples of that. But I thought there were a lot of other examples of and I I'll, I'll mispronounce this guy's name. It's number 99 for Northwestern. Adabare. And That's when nice. I did my top 5 my my players for Ohio State fans to worry about earlier in the week, I kind of jumped right over the concept of them really needing to worry about anybody and, and wrote about something else. But I mentioned some players, and he was on that list kind of prominently because he, I think, is clearly their best defensive player, and he showed it on Saturday. And from really the first couple possessions of the game, um, early on in the second possession, a play where you know Mayan Williams is trying to run kind of off right tackle, and he just like shoves off of whoever was attempting to block him there. I didn't write that down. And just waiting in the hole. And Mike Williams just kind of runs right into his arms. And that wasn't the first case where that guy was able to, to blow up situations. So I don't know if that is simply an effort problem when it comes to uh, Matt Jones. Or execution maybe is a better way to say it when it comes to yeah, Matt Jones. Yeah. Matt Jones and Donovan Jackson that they just weren't winning the battle. I don't know if it's a schematic thing that if Ohio State – aired in the way that it chose to try to block those things one-on-one and left themselves exposed there. But in either case, I don't think it was a, the weather at all. I think it was a guy winning that battle repeatedly. So that example you used of the safety coming down, I thought that was like the one. Like it's like, yeah. oh, here's an example. I thought it was the example. Like not – There was like another the, one later that – was, that was like the really they had eight guys blocking on that play against seven defenders um, in the box. No, no, no. That was a different play. They had eight versus eight. It's like there's like eight guys in the box. Um, I think it was a corner on that side, three linebackers, four defensive linemen. Ohio State's tight with the tight ends and everybody. And they're trying to block up everybody. And they kind of do really block up everybody. Like it's sort of like eight blocks on eight guys. And then the ninth guy is the safety firing down in the hole. And you see Mayan Williams get through the hole. He is right on the verge of getting yeah. through the hole. And then the guy hit him like a bus. Yeah. And But also, it's sometimes the back has to take care of the guy in the hole. It's like, that's you. All right, we blocked everybody else. Now there's one. That's you. And in that situation, the safety, who was downhill like a ton of bricks, won that battle. But also, sometimes a running back has to win that battle. But that was clear where that guy had no worries. That guy was attacking. Yeah. I thought the rest of the time they lost battles. And Adabare had his way. He beat Kate Stover. He beat Matthew Jones. The fourth and one where they got stopped, they had two tight ends in the game. There were eight. And I thought this was, this was a little bit like Ryan Day gave into this. Eight guys in the box, seven blockers. So you're down right. already. Like you're lining up and you're saying like, well, there's more guys to block than we have available to block. And they didn't try to throw a little slant to Marvin Harrison. They didn't try to get outside. They kind of just said, okay, we're going to run this. I thought the left side of the line lost on that play. I thought um, Dewan Jones tried to get to the second level and didn't get there. And their one unblocked guy was a linebacker who then met Mayan Williams in the hole before Mayan Williams got to the line of scrimmage and won. So it's like... I thought they did lose one-on-one battles on that fourth and one. And then also it was like, all right, well, there was one more guy than you could block. And you knew that when you got up to the line of scrimmage. And this was the play you ran. So I thought that was a, maybe a failure of execution. 
um, end design yeah. on that fourth and one. And and the one before that, the third and one before that, because again, that's what stood out. Stopped on third and one, stopped on fourth and one. They have three tight ends in the game on third and one. And out of bar, I just throws Kate Stover to the side and tackles mine Williams. Yep. It's like a great individual play. And there were like three or four plays in the first half where it was like, what happened there? And it was out of bar, I beat his guy. So he's a very good player, which we did mention post game. When you watch it again, it's like, wow, he is a very, very good player. But it's like, what, a Northwestern has like one good defensive lineman and there goes the run game? I, I thought it was more Ohio State not winning matchups than it was they put 11 guys in the box because the wind was blowing hard. Yeah, there was, and there was one other play later, and I, I don't, I didn't write it down specifically, but I remember thinking at the time, like that was kind of maybe a play where I could see using that, but I, I, I still don't buy. Okay, they're putting extra guys in the box, so just put your own extra guy in the box. I, I thought Ohio State, like, but they saying, did, but they tight, well, but they almost invited that. They were three tight ends a lot. You know, it's like, hey, it was Josh Fryer and Cade Stover and right. here's G. Scott. No, how comes Mitch Ross? Like, they did tighten up a lot. It's like, well, sometimes it's like, well, there's eight guys in the box. Because you, you have three tight ends in the game. But then I didn't think they had a bunch of wrinkles off of that. And again, maybe you have yeah. wrinkles and you can't use them because you don't trust yourself to throw at all. So that's what you're saying. But then show me, like, the three extra tight ends winning one-on-one blocks and making a hole. And you didn't see that very much, at least early. And again, right. they did... It did eventually, with CJ pulling on fourth and one, with the 44-yard run by CJ late, the Mayan Williams talking about the times in the hole where the linebacker got him on fourth and one, where the safety shot down and got him on that other play. And then there was another play where Mayan got through the hole, got to the second level, destroyed people, and scored a touchdown. So then he did win. Mayan Williams also did win at times. And then Northwestern yes. guys won sometimes. So we want to acknowledge the times when Mayan Williams, with as we said after the game, with an unbelievable individual effort, got that touchdown. But um, for the talent disparity that you assume is there, Northwestern versus Ohio State, it didn't feel like a bunch of guys winning up front time after time. And again, context, 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 run blocking grades from PFF. Cade Stover, 66.3. Luke Whippler, 65.7. Matt Jones, 57.6. Paris Johnson, 57. Dewan Jones, 53.8. Donovan Jackson, 51.8. Once you get down like in the low 50s, that's not great. And so I want to give a little bit more context to that because last week when we did this, we were pointing out the Matthew Jones situation, times where we thought Matthew Jones was getting beaten a lot. And I talked to a film guy who said that not only – so first of all, those PFF grades are not just one guy. Like they have to be – like checked off by a quality control person above them who has also graded the, the game. So it's like multiple people saying that Matt Jones in that game was not just good or not just fine, but like actually kind of good. And then this guy watched the film and said the same thing. He thought, no, I thought he did a really good job. So I, I want to say that to give context to how low those numbers are again today. Now you're because he was getting like in the high 60s, I think, last week for his run grade. And these are all when you start getting down in the 50s. I think that says a lot. And I, to get back to what you said earlier about like the wrinkle, I did think that Ohio State, as much as Ryan Day said they had a plan for this game, I, I thought their plan could have been a little bit more creative. Like I, I, I think that they could have used the screen game more, and I'm not talking about even just like bubble screens. I'm talking about they used the one to Cade Stover that I thought worked really well. I think you could use Mayan Williams in a, a so that's, I said that after the game, game situation. The only running back they had had a had had a hand injury. It's not the, it's the only running back they use. You're not going to bring Chip Trainum and Dallin Hayden in and start throwing screens to him. I mean, that's just <laughs> if Trayvon Henderson's there. I said that after the game. If Trayvon Henderson's there, I thought the, I I thought the screen game 
Yeah, exactly that. Because the but but I think the reason it's not what Mayan does best anyway. It actually is one of the things that Travion does best. Right. But throw in the fact that Mayan's coming off a hand injury, and I think maybe that took that away when it would have been the exact thing That's, to do in that game. Yeah, I, I guess I, I I see what you're saying there. I, I think they also like the the sweep game with Ibuka worked well the couple times they did it. I don't know if if it's one of those things where there's diminishing returns that the more you do it, the less it would work. Uh, they picked their spots with it, but maybe there was something else they could have done there. They even did a sweep one time with Mayan Williams, where he got a nice run. He was coming out of the slot, and they brought him in motion and handed it off to him. I, the thing with Mayan Williams is I understand what people have liked about him in the past, like keeping the legs running, running downhill, but he's not Ron Dane. He's not uh, Craig Hayward from Tech Mobile or whatever. Like he's He doesn't just plow through people. It's more just that that downhill style and what he can do when he's given any kind of a gap at all. So I think there was a combination there of him just not getting enough of a gap at times. There was a couple times where I thought he could have made a better cut and and gotten himself something. It's it's still, though, a, a lot dependent on this offensive line clearing out better space than it's been able to clear out pretty consistently over these past three weeks. And it's just the standard at Ohio State. Adabari is a really good player. I think the expectation is that Ohio State up front wins its one-on-one battles and makes holes. So, but again, it wasn't just there was a hole and a li- an unblocked linebacker was in the hole every time. There were times when it was like they just Mayan Williams is trying to go where he thinks he's supposed to go, and there's an offensive lineman pushed into the backfield because the defensive lineman won the matchup. So, um, was worth looking back. Does it again? Because it's like, well, what does it mean? It's like, well. You know, when they play a good defensive line, this is kind of like, I I wonder, which is what we said before. So, okay, that's our football talk. We wanted to put Ohio State in contact with Georgia. We wanted to, like, reshape the playoff picture a little bit. If Ohio State gets to Indy, who are they playing? One last look at, at the run game on Saturday. And so now that's all the football talk. If you only want football talk, you can leave. But when we come back, I did have a weird weekend. And we'll talk about that on what you're watching, what you're eating, what you're thinking on Buckeye Talk. All right, back, Doug Maurice and Nathan Baird. If you want to be a tech subscriber, you can do it at 614-350-3315. Nathan, what are you watching? Yeah, I actually may have to just pass to you on this this week because between the travel and the baby, uh, I, we haven't watched anything new this past week. I don't want to be repetitive. We're still finishing off some of the shows that I've already talked about watching. So uh, if you watched anything new, you can take you can I cede my time to you to the gentleman from no I didn't watch Pennsylvania I I didn't I didn't uh, watch anything either but my in-laws were here to stay with my younger daughter who's in high school while my wife and I both were in Evanston because again my older daughter is there and it was just coincidentally it was parents weekend this weekend and so it was just a reminder of while my in-laws were here. And I just I just don't know if there's not enough programming for older adults or if it's just when you kind of have the TV on 14 hours a day. Regardless of what channel you're watching, is it does do does every older American just watch political news channels 24 hours a day? Because like my wife and I never have that on. We never have it on. We never have it on. Not that we don't care about politics, but that's just not what I want on in my house 24 hours a day. And whenever her parents or my mom is here, that's what's on. Like, that's the the, the default of what is on. 
instead of, you know, I don't know what, two broke girls or something, or I don't like whatever random. And I just, I don't know why, but it was a reminder because we had older people in our house and it was like, oh, great. Oh, okay. I mean, they can watch what they want, but oh, this is going to, this is going to be on 16 hours a day now. And I just, I'm not sure what the draw is. What, what's the draw? Is it just because again, it's like, well, I don't know. I want to, I don't want to watch some sitcom about 24 year olds in New York because I'm, I'm not 24 and I'm not in New York. So what am I supposed to watch? I guess I'll watch this. Why, why, why does, why is that the choice? I, I think it's, it's the same thing. Even if it's different shows, it's the same thing all day. I think part of it is the same way that you f- watch your favorite team play games because, and by extension, like you feel like you're participating in the Browns game or the Ohio State game when you're gathered with people or even just one of the, and you're watching the game and you're like rooting. And I almost feel like that's what polit- political news has become in this country that like I'm watching MSNBC or Fox or whatever, and I'm sort of, this is my participation in politics is that I'm like, yeah, like, that's right. Like I'm, I'm that's how I'm following along at home with what's going on. And I guess the election's on Tuesday. So it's kind of a good time to do it. So it's not a revelation. It was just in my house again. I was like, oh yeah, no, this is how it works. So it's, and I always, the thing that I always think about is like, what is, I'm always curious in, is this what, Every 70-year-old person is going to do through the history of town. Like when I'm 70, is that what I'm going to do? Or is it more generational that it's people who grew up at a certain time now because they're at this age? It's, it's more about how they grew up and that when I reach that stage, because I'm of a different generation and things around me were different when I grew up, I won't do that. You know what I mean? Like what is age-related and what is generational? And I hope this is not age-related because I don't want to watch politics all day, every day for 16 hours a day for the final 10 years of my life. I don't, I just want to play video games, but I guess they don't know how to play video games. Current 70 year olds don't know how to play video games. I do. Yeah. Things are going to, it's a different generation. It's a different generation. I think it's that. It's like my dad is in his mid eighties now. And when we go home to visit them, he usually will play games and stuff in the kitchen, board games, card games. And he kind of goes off by himself and falls asleep in the other room. But usually it's not watching politics. It's watching like, westerns or old movies and stuff like that good so watch westerns better than better than this alternative so yeah great watch western and i just i do have a plan i have like a lot of the shows that i've never watched i'm like i'm gonna watch that when i'm 70 it's like i hope i make it i hope i'm not like oh like i'm done and it's like i never got to watch that show i was saving it for 30 years i thought oh when i'm retired i can watch that show all right what are you eating i'll start with this because i actually have like a good eating thing so it was parents' weekend. They had special activities. And on Sunday morning um, at Northwestern for parents' weekend, they had a Krispy Kreme 5K on the lakefront at Northwestern. So the deal was it's a 5K, but there are eight donut stops along the way. It's actually two loops of the same thing. So there's four donut stops, and you get to each one twice. And if you stop and eat a Krispy Kreme donut, then you get a shortcut in the race. So I will just say the result was that I broke 20 minutes in a 5K for the first time in my life, first and only time in my life, because I only ran 1.9 miles instead of 3.1 miles because I did donut my way 
through the course. I did not eat all eight donuts, but I ate seven. So I ate seven donuts in less than 20 minutes, and I ran 1.9 miles, and I lived to tell about it. And I, I did the one thing that is weird is when you are in a race where you get a shortcut for eating donuts, you wind up, you're constantly being passed by faster people who did not eat as many donuts as you. Um, but I definitely beat some fast people. I beat, I beat, I, I was talking about beating slow people a couple weeks ago. I beat fast people this time because they were not as willing to do the donuts as I was. So I ate seven donuts in 20 minutes. Don't you hate, like, I'm sure there were people who were running that race who were like watching people go get the donuts and were like, ugh. What what are amateurs? What are they? They're not taking this seriously. And you hope those people trip and skin their knees at some point. Well, just go run. Yeah, go run a regular race where there are yeah. no donuts. I think to my, I, I'm I'm not a 5K expert. I've run several 5Ks in my life. I don't think most of them have donuts. So I did ask in in mid run when I was eating. I skipped one because I was like, ah, I just ate a donut, and this shortcut is not that good. I'm just gonna I'll run this part instead of eat this donut. But I said, like, do some people eat all eight donuts? And somebody's like, oh, yeah, the winner last year ate all eight donuts. And I was like, I want to meet that person. (laughs) So fast. I do think among the donut eaters, I maybe was moderately fast for a donut eater. If you know what I mean. That should go on a tombstone. Yeah. That should be on your Twitter bio by the time this podcast is over. Moderately fast Fast for for a donut donut eater. eater. Moderately fast. Moderately fast for a donut either. And I haven't gone back to check what I finished. There was like 150 or 60 people in it. I think I might have finished like in the top 30 because I ate so many donuts. So take that. And there were a lot of young people who weren't as good as eating donuts as I was. So that was my what I ate because I ate seven donuts in 20 minutes. Nathan, what did you eat? I want to give a shout out really quickly to the Northwestern Press Box spread, which was Bona, I think is how you pronounce it. B-U-O-N-A, mm. and it's like it's a I wasn't introduced to it until like within the last year or so. A suburban Chicago like Italian beef place, but uh, a lot of good those sorts of things that they had for us at lunch. So that was nice. Um, but I also needed lunch the day before because I got into Chicago so early. And as I was casting about for places to go, uh, live, uh, I was in sort of the downtown Chicago, like uh, uh, Dearborn Street and I I found a place that I thought you would appreciate. In fact, I know you appreciate because you've talked about it on this very podcast before. And I took a picture. I meant to send it to our texters and I forgot. But uh, the sign on the wall just says, Hot Asian Buns. Oh, no. You found Hot Asian Buns? You went to Wow Bow? I went to Wow Bow. Oh, my God. I live by Wow Bow. Oh, you went to Wow Bow? Yeah. Off just had you been to you Wow talk- Bow No, I'd never been. But I knew you had talked What'd about you think? it. And- no, I thought it was all right. <laughs> So that is guess, actually, I I do overtalk it. I well, overtalk. There were some things about it I really liked. I like ginger ale and ginger ginger things a lot. They have ginger ale like their homemade ginger ale. So that was pretty good. And then the uh, for people who haven't heard the the bow itself is just this little dough ball stuffed with meat, uh, Asian persuasion. And I got four. They could get like a four pack. And I just got four different kinds. And there were a couple I thought were pretty good, like a spicy beef type thing. And then there was one that was like Kung Pao chicken that was kind of had this like nutty flavor that I didn't really mm. feel like worked yeah. that well with. Oh, that's the my bow. jam is the Kung Pao. Really? Uh, I, I wasn't a big fan of that. But overall, I, it was fine. It was fine. 
it's just a, it's a different thing. And it, and yeah. so again, it has come here. It was in a, it, it was in a, it's in a ghost kitchen near my house, but not a real place. We heard there might, there's one in the Cleveland airport. There's a wild bow mm. in the Cleveland airport. I think it's, it might be the only actual one in Ohio. My grocery store the other day, they had the wow bow, like, that you could buy like two cold buns and heat them up yourself. But I was like, that's kind of not the deal. But I also just like saying hot Asian buns. Like it's sure. just like, I, that's, I love it. So, well, I'm glad you tried it. But I also, it's the concept because I think of it like it's a fast casual. You mix it in. Oh, I don't want a burrito. Oh, I don't want to, mm-hmm. you know, I don't want to go to Piata. I don't want to get, I don't want to go to Zoop or whatever. I'm not going to. And it's like, oh, I'll go get wow buns, bow buns. It's bow buns. I'll go get bow buns. And it's like a nice change up because you can meet in your car. I like the thing. I like anything where you eat the package, and the bun is both food and package, and inside is meat. Well, it is also wrapped in something. I wouldn't advise eating that. There has a little. Oh, I think I've eaten that before. Though, probably. Uh, I wish I had gotten. I almost did order like some kind of dumpling soup they had. I think that probably would have been pretty good on like a on like a blustery Chicago afternoon. So maybe next time. Nice. Well, I'm glad you tried it. And then they do have the the dessert buns also. Did you get a dessert bun? No, no. I just got Are those four buns. I them? knew I was having uh, – uh, I was stuffing myself with Luminati's for dinner, so I didn't go too heavy on lunch. Okay. All right. What are you thinking about? Because my thinking is pretty weird. Okay. So I'm saving it. Well, this is – I almost wonder if I've ever had this rant before, but it astonishes me every time I get on a plane how few people have any concept of how to get on a plane. Mm-hmm. Like it, the the people who either don't understand spatially how to put luggage in the overhead bin, or they know but they just don't care. They're just that inconsiderate of everyone else on the flight, and they're just gonna shove it up there wherever they want and make the flight attendant come and fix it, so that the eighty five year old woman who's getting on later and is struggling, like there needs to be. You almost need to pass a class or something to be able to get on a plane. I think. Like, if you're that dumb that you can't like, – the, the way people are flummoxed by just walking onto a plane, putting their their stuff in the overhead, and sitting down is astonishing to me every time I see it. It, it Like, you would have thought that, like, we would have invented, like, flying cars and, like, been to other planets and colonized Mars by now. But every time I watch us try to get on a plane together, I know why we haven't and we'll probably never will. There are times when you're out in the world – and listen – you know, we got problems in the country, of course, but there are times when you're out in the world and you see people around you and you think, how is the entire, all of society, not just in flames? Because there are just a lot of people out here, who, how do they even function in the world to get through life on a day-to-day basis? Because this somewhat normal thing seems very difficult for them, either that they can't figure it out or, as you said, um, they don't care to figure it out. So yeah, eh, welcome to Plains. Um so I got hypnotized on Saturday night, and I would be willing to hire myself out as a person who is excellent at being hypnotized. And I know I've told stories before. I was hypnotized at a show five or six years ago, and this was, again, part of Parents Weekend, and we planned to go to it Saturday night. My daughter was hoping that I would get picked because I just am susceptible to it. So they picked 20 people, and my wife and my daughter were like pointing at me like, take this guy, take this guy, and I had my hand up. And so I did get picked. And then when I went up on stage, the hypnotist said, has anyone here ever been hypnotized before? And I was the only one that had been. And so he said, okay, so if you've been hypnotized before, you really can go under really quick again, which I don't know if that's true or not. But he made me like pull my chair out in front of everybody else. So sitting there by myself, he hypnotized me in 30 seconds. And I was slumped over. I was leaning on the woman next to me. I was drooling. I was out like a maniac. 
and then during the course of the show, um, I just I it's, and the thing people ask me like, what does it feel like? Do you remember? I remember everything, but to me, it's like being drunk. It's like you know you're doing it, and you kind of know that it's weird, but you're like, well, I got to do this. Like you're just gonna do it, and it just makes sense to you in that moment, even though if you weren't hypnotized or buzzed, it wouldn't make sense to do what you are doing. So um, at one point he was saying like, we're, you're, you're watching a movie and you're watching the funniest movie you ever saw. And I just immediately start laughing super loud. And then he said, and now it's a sad movie. And I immediately start crying. And he says, now you're, a, but we were supposed to be five years old while we were doing this. He said, now you're watching a movie and like the people are starting to have a love. They're making out with each other and you think it's gross. And I was like recoiling and going like, oh God. Ugh. And then he said, now we're watching Bambi. And then I was like, oh yeah, Bambi, Bambi. And I also get very loud. I shout in the midst of it. I don't know if you're supposed to shout, but I'm very vocal when I'm hypnotized. And then he was like, oh, no, and, but, but here comes Bambi's mother. And I was yelling, no, 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 not this, no. You know, because everybody knows what happened. I don't want to – spoiler alert on Bambi if you haven't seen it. Um, and then at the end, he made me – every time he would hypnotize somebody else, I was supposed to want their shoes, and I would go over and take their shoes off of them and then hide their shoes under my chair. And so I did that with like six people and I hid their shoes under my chair. And then at the end, he sent us out into the audience and he said, when you hear this music, you're a ballet dancer. And I was dancing ballet in the midst of the audience. And then he played like a cowboy song and we had to yell Hi-Oh Silver and like ride a horse through the audience. And I, I know exactly what I did. And in the moment, it was just something that I had to do. But I am excellent, I think, because I'm a big, goofy Ding dong. I am just really good. I, I just let it go. I just let it all out and I am there for the taken. And it happened again on Saturday night. But there's something that makes you more susceptible to getting hypnotized in the first place, right? Like, aren't there people who yes. it just doesn't? You, Because I, I think Correct. I might be a person who would be hard to hypnotize. I think it's a focus. My thing. wife is that. I think it's a focus thing. The, the the they said I was reading some stuff about it, and it was like I did. They do say like creativity. If you are a kind of person who can like picture things in your head, and like they become very real to you, like when you're thinking like, oh, if you think about this, can you actually see it? Um, that helps because he was like, oh, you're on an airplane and you're looking out the window and it's the Sahara Desert. Now you're getting hot on the airplane, and like I can feel my body getting hot. You know, when he's saying that and then like, oh, now you're looking out now you're you're in the Antarctic and you're looking out the other window. And now you're freezing and I can feel like I can feel my body get cold in those situations. But I do just think I think it's mostly being a big, dumb idiot. So, you know, people listen to this podcast for whatever it is, seven years, maybe not shocked, but I love it. I feel refreshed at the end. I'm like I'm like ready to roll. It's like I, I was asleep. Like I was asleep on stage and I got to, you know, be part of a show while I was asleep. So, um, yeah, we should have a Buckeye talk. If we could, we could have like a Buckeye talk um, show where we like talk about football for a little bit. And then like they try to hypnotize 20 of us and see what happens. Like I'm always down for it. Why not? Look deep into my eyes, Nathan Baird. I was going to try to do it right now. Look, and then after the last time I got hypnotized, my wife like bought like, 
the program from like the hypnotizing guy and it was like, I was supposed to like try to listen to it and like make myself a better person <laughs> through hypnosis, but I never did that. They have I don't to like hypnotize you to make you remember to do it, to force you to do it. No, I know. Yeah, right, right. And my wife was like, could they hypnotize you into cleaning the house? And I was like, I don't know. Let's try it. So anyway, that's what happened to me on Saturday night while Alabama was losing uh, to LSU. We'll be back with, oh, special. We're going to squeeze in a pod. This is the plan. This should drop Tuesday morning at some point, which will be our version of a basketball preview. Ohio State basketball plays Monday night. We're going to kind of watch that game. And then Stephen and I, the plan is after that game to do our basketball preview, which will be after the season has started. But it's just worth it, I think, to get a try to get some sense of like the rotation and how guys, some how minutes might be distributed and who's exactly going to do what. Uh, we did not want to take away from football to do a basketball podcast. So that would be our plan is that'll go in that Tuesday morning slot where there's not normally a podcast at all. And that will be the seventh podcast of the week. So we're not denying you anything for people who are geared up for the, the home stretch of football, but we do want to check in on the Ohio State basketball team and talk about how we think they look. So that is the plan for Tuesday. Back with Rants on Wednesday. I got maybe a thing for Thursday. We'll see. And then uh, Indiana this week, Nathan. Indiana fighting Hoosiers. They're not Tom really Allen. fighting that hard right now. <laughs> the trying. Are they? Yeah, trying. kind of. Um, what do you think... Do you think Tuesday with Ryan Day could be interesting at all? Like, how do you think this might go? Given that it was like the third week in the row of some run game issues at some point, and that last week it got a little got a little interesting with some of the questions that people asked about specifically play calling and how Ryan Day reacted to them. Uh, what do you think? It's a good Tuesday question be like? because there's on one hand you want to say, well, listen. You're not going to play games in exactly that condition ever again, probably. Like, that's so rare. Like, once a decade, you might have a game that's that weird from the wind. And But at the same time, as we talked about, I think you saw examples there, and you saw examples each of the past two weeks, where they're losing battles in the run game. So is that just a condition of this team? And if so, what does that mean? Uh, and and your your point all along has been that maybe it doesn't mean that much, especially if you're not throwing in a wind tunnel, because you'll be able to throw your way out of it eventually. And that may be true, but I also think that there are questions to answer here because, again, and I'll take this back to the Iowa game, because when he was talking about like the short fields and stuff, and I'm like, when you go back and look at that game, I, I understand, okay, Iowa has you penned in a little bit, not really, though. You're getting the ball like they're 40, but that doesn't explain why you couldn't run the ball better. Like running the ball at their 40 is not different than running the ball at your own 30, really, right? Like why weren't you running the ball better there? Why aren't you running the ball? And again, in these key, key situations, third and one, fourth and one, like game on the line, because and I think there's some parallels here to the Iowa game. Those both neither Iowa or Northwestern nor Northwestern were going to challenge you offensively. Either because, no matter what the elements were, like Northwestern wasn't going to challenge Ohio State with its offense. They weren't going to put pressure on Ohio State with what it could do moving the ball. So it's two weeks out of the last three where you ran into an opponent. Now, now they solved it against Penn State. That was a team that could take advantage, and Ohio State went on the road and got a good win. But the Iowa and Northwestern, it's still two of the last three weeks where if I think if they're playing any kind of a better team, 
like an upper half of the Big Ten team, a, a a team that's like contending for even a divisional championship, like what we're talking about. I guess Iowa technically is, but like a team that can move the ball at all, you you've got problems. I think. So I want to. I, I don't think you can go in and completely dismiss this idea of boy, the weather was bad. I wrote a thing this morning. Like I think to be the king of the north, you've got to beat Big Ten conditions as much as you beat Big Ten teams. Like it's it's a little bit unfair, almost not unfair, but like if Ryan Day came in and put together an offense that could only win in Big Ten conditions, like a, a run first offense that wasn't really dynamic or progressive and didn't emphasize skilled players on the perimeter, like people would be like, well, okay, they ground their way. You know, they'd be talking about like the West, like okay, you won. You, you find a way to win the Big Ten, plod your way through the Big Ten, but you can't win with the big boys. But you can't just have the offense that wins on the big with plays with the big boys uh, in from the SEC and, and the, the, the desert locations and and be handcuffed in Big Ten weather. So I think they've got to find a way to impose themselves more in the run game and have more of a dual identity than what they have right now. And that... We've had that conversation since Ryan Day got here. That has been the conversation. You are you have to be one kind of team on the national stage to get to where you want to go, but you might have to be a different kind of team along the way to give yourself that opportunity. And frankly, that might only be an Ohio State conversation. You are not having that conversation about Alabama or Clemson. Now, listen, Clemson went to South Bend and didn't have a good time. Yeah. So maybe, that, but that was they had to go on the road into an environment that they only face on the road, right? Um, but this is the this is the whole point of the Kings of the North. You want to be more because Michigan is not yeah. more. But also Michigan, like what Michigan is doing right now, people are looking at Michigan and saying, "Yes, this is how they do it." It's kind of the backwards approach. It's almost the mirror image of Ohio State, right? It's like you you thump them on the ground and thump them and thump them and thump them, and maybe that opens up something on the pass. You pick your spots, but like, are they going to be so good at that that it'll work even at, 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 at like a, a, a higher level? I think people are skeptical. I think people are no. skeptical, but 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 again, this is the conversation yeah. we've had. This conversation a thousand times. This is the Ohio State conversation. Michigan, I don't think, thinks about right. Georgia or Bama or LSU or TCU or USC or Oregon or Clemson. I think they think about beating Ohio State. But Ohio State thinks about more. And they, they do. They have a team, and they had to get the defense fixed. They have an offense that, think, that can get them over the top on the national stage, but they have to get to the national stage. And it requires them to maybe do two different things. And that is super interesting. But we saw what the Michigan run game did when it got to Georgia last year. Now, is J.J. McCarthy going to elevate the pass game? Yes, I think he will. Will he elevate it enough? I think there's a lot of reasons to wonder. And again, I keep saying, we can do a poll about it. You want to switch offenses? Right. Who do you? If you're Ohio State and you don't like how this is going, pick the offense you want to switch with. Who do you want to switch with? For 15 games, not for one Saturday in November, for the whole time. Who do you want to be instead offensively? And if you want to, I want to be everything. Okay, well, who's everything? Like, not the ideal, like, hey, we're first in run and first in pass. Like, real life. Like, okay, who are you, who do you want to be instead? So, it's the ongoing conversation, but it's the whole theme of Kings of the North. You've got to win, as you said, Nathan, you've got to win in the North to be able to go out into the world. But nobody is better prepared from the North to go out into the world than Ohio State is. Yeah. 
But it's, you got to win here first, or you're never going to have that chance. It's tricky, and I, it's fascinating. Yeah. It's a conversation. I, I don't think anybody else in the in the nation has this conversation, which is why I love having this conversation because it's so specific to what Ohio State is and wants. Right, because to nobody be. talks about like, well, I mean, Alabama and Georgia can win the SEC, but when they get up against a Big Ten team, what's going to happen? They're like. No, it's like nobody worries what's going to happen once you've once you've proven you can. And it's that is. So I wonder if that's going to maybe be on his mind a little bit. And and, but listen, like. There's also the difference between what he'll tell us up at the lectern and what he will what they're saying behind closed doors in their meetings, whatnot. You can't have this conversation. You can't have this conversation Tuesday with Ryan Day. Ryan, do you feel like Ohio State is in a rare position of having to have two offensive identities, one for the regular season and one for the postseason, one for Big Ten play and one for the national scene, one to get you through and one to get you over the top. Is that two different goals and two different ways of doing it? And his answer is going to be, we need to be great at running it and throwing it. He is not going to have that conversation. But I think where it could get testy is I would still say winning, beating Northwestern third and one repeatedly fourth and one that's not two identities you have to be able to do that you have to at least be able to beat northwestern in those situations because you're going to have to beat all those better teams in those situations too and the third and one fourth and one that's going to come up in at the michigan game it did last year it's going to come up in playoff games like you've you've got to win those situations no matter where you're playing geographically no matter what style of football you are yeah but i disagree but you don't have to run it throw a slant to marvin harrison uh, when they what was it a couple weeks ago when they got stuffed on fourth and one on fourth and one they ran a little rollout with a Mecca right I mean like you have to get a third and one you don't have to get on the ground I suppose but you kind of had to get it they they well I mean that's true I mean like that's my whole thing is like well don't do it I don't think you have to run it on third and one but on Saturday you did because you were not trusting the pass game you were not and I think maybe there would have been even more opportunity to trust a little bit. I, I did think that fourth down when you had four, eight guys in the box and seven blockers on that fourth down, maybe you should have been throwing a slant to Marvin Harrison Jr. right in that situation. Now, and even in the wind, right? But as long as the wind's not stopping you, I like their chances of converting that through the air. At the moment I do not like their chances of converting it on the ground against Georgia. But I think they can win their one-on-one even against good Georgia corners. So anyway, it's the it is the the Ohio State conversation. It's the only Ohio State conversation. And it's the only place you can have that conversation. And now I feel bad because we talked about hypnotism and and hot buns and we're like, "Ah, you can leave." And then we like went back to like 8 minutes of like the thrust of the entire football conversation but as, about Ohio State. I have to remind people, don't give up on the on As the, you said, we've done it before. We've had that conversation before, and we're going to have it again going into November 26th. Yes. Yes, for sure. And I don't know if there's a, is there a Farmer's Almanac that we can get. Does anyone know the forecast for Columbus on November 26th? Because it kind of matters. Let's see. It kind of – it's like, what's the most important thing left on Ohio State's schedule? Will it be windy for the Michigan game? Is the most most important thing left on Ohio State's schedule? What are you are you calling up farmersalmanac.com? What do you got that bookmark? November 20, 2022 for the twenty sixth. It looks like clear skies and forty eight a high of forty eight with some rain earlier well, in the week gusts. and rain coming in after though. So you know that's a let's a few weeks from now that could change one way or the other as far as that precip coming in. 
but it doesn't look like it's going to be yeah. a snow situation. You're you're pretty pretty consistently in the high 40s up into the 50s up until into the next week. So okay. Wind. Mm. Wind. Rank the most important wind uh weather elements. Snow, rain, wind. Wind is number 1 for anybody who wants to throw. Well, they- well, they said they have a plan going into the last one. They okay. should have a spectacular plan going into the next one if it happens three weeks later. Yeah. All right. That's it for this podcast. We'll catch you guys later. Readcleveland.com slash OSU. Try the text at 614-350-3315. For Nathan Baird, I'm Doug Maurice, and that was Buckeye Talk. Buckeye Talk.